Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In today's episode, we will be talking about the important role played by imperial legacies in the contemporary geopolitics of Eurasia. You're about to hear a conversation I had with my colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Mankoff, a senior associate, non-resident fellow with the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program here at CSIS. He's also a distinguished research fellow at the U.S. National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. In 2020, Jeff released his latest book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security, from Yale University Press. Jeff and I sat down together this past December to discuss the book's conclusions and its implications for the politics of Eurasia today. It is my great pleasure and honor to have uh, a true friend of CSIS and a friend of our program, uh, Jeff Mankoff, Dr. Jeff Mankoff here, to talk about uh, his new book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security, from Yale University Press, and it's out this year. Uh, just a, a quick, quick bio uh, for Dr. Mankoff. Uh, Jeff is a distinguished research fellow at the U.S. National Defense uh, National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies, and is a non-resident senior associate uh, here with our program on Europe and Russia at CSIS. Um, Jeff was previously a senior fellow here at CSIS and served as an advisor on U.S.-Russia relations at the U.S. Department of State as a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. From 2008 to 2010, he was Associate Director of International Security Studies at Yale University uh, and an Adjunct Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also held the John Olin National Security Fellowship at Harvard University and the Henry Chauncer Fellowship at Yale. Uh, Dr. Mankoff received uh, his undergraduate degrees in international studies and Russian from the University of Oklahoma, uh, as well as a PhD from Yale University. Uh, Jeff, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for, for being with us, and congrats on what is a, a really fascinating and page-turning book, um, one that I think really helps explain, in some ways, our, our current geopolitical moment. Um, I was wondering maybe just to start, if you could just maybe lay out uh, your, your main argument, your, your main thesis, and, and, and why the legacy of empires uh, was so important and why these four countries were, uh, were, were, what, were, were your focus. Sure. Thanks, Max, and, and thanks so much for having me. It's, it's always great to be back at CSIS. As, as far as the book goes, I think the best way to characterize the main argument is to look at where the main revisionist challenges to the current U.S.-led international order are coming from. Um, and really, um, they seem to be focused on the landmass of Eurasia, all of the, the main uh, U.S. strategic rivals, all of the main revisionist powers vis-a-vis -vis that order are these Eurasian states. And they're not only Eurasian states, but they're former empires. Uh, so we think about Russia and its war of aggression in Ukraine. We think about China uh, and its threats against Taiwan and, and in the South China Sea. Uh, we think about Iran and its support for groups like Hezbollah. Uh, which it uses to project power all throughout the Levant and, and much of the Middle East. Um, and then the fourth country that I focus on is Turkey, which is a U.S. ally, uh, which is anchored to 
the West through its membership in NATO, um, but that also has some of these uh, characteristics and is pursuing uh, territorial uh, political ambitions around its borders as well. We see it's uh, now preparing for a military offensive into northern Syria. Uh, so in some ways fits this pattern as well. Um, and I think what unites all of these countries uh, is the fact that they have this imperial past, they have this sort of imperial DNA that continues to shape their political cultures and that provides a language and a set of symbols that their, polit their political leadership calls upon uh, as a source of, just of legitimation and as a justification for, excuse me, their assertive uh, foreign policy approaches. And so I wanted to tease that out in the book, look at where these legacies came from and how they were operationalized uh, in the service of this more assertive or revisionist foreign policy. So. I want to maybe pull one quote, which I think really stood out for me. Um, so you write, Russia, Turkey, Iran, and China are united by an aspiration to make the 21st century world safe for empire. Uh, sort of a play on the United States trying to make the world safe for democracy. Uh, so do you see these, these countries um, reinforcing each other's efforts? I mean, in some ways, they're both competing with each other because they're all sort of competing in mm -hmm. the Eurasian landmass for, uh, for their you know, prior imperial glory or, mm -hmm. and, and resonance. Uh, but you see them reinforcing each other as being revisionist powers on the world stage. Yeah, this is, this is an important nuance in, in the relationship among these four powers, which is that if you look at specific geographies, so Central Asia between Russia and China, let's say, or Syria uh, between Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Um, there is strategic competition going on uh, between these four powers. At the same time, all of them support the idea that they and their imperial rivals have the right to engage in this kind of behavior. So even though, let's say, Russia, Turkey, and Iran have very different objectives uh, in Syria, all of them are treating with one another, they're interacting with one another, they've created uh, informal political frameworks outside the confines of what we might call the liberal international order uh, in order to manage those tensions and point to the, the so-called Astana framework. Um, and what they're doing here is essentially uh, engaging in a kind of bargaining uh, among these imperial rivals, which looks a lot like how the balance of power in the classical imperial age worked. Uh, there's compensation, there's a belief that some countries or some powers are, are more powerful or, or more their interests are more legitimate than others, um, and that these territories in between, uh, what I call in the book the interstices, uh, but, or the shatter zones between these empires, are subject to being manipulated, reorganized, invaded uh, by their larger neighbors. Right. So it, in, in, essentially, each of these countries are sort of chafing at the kind of post-1945 UN mm -hmm. um, uh, international order based off of recognition of t territorial boundaries and of, of, uh, of, of nation states. Mm -hmm. And you know, the book was largely written or almost you know, written before the war uh, in Ukraine, before Russia's invasion, which strikes me as sort of the penultimate sort of example of, of Russia being a revisionist power. Mm -hmm. But for me, one of the things that I find really fascinating about this is that, you know, we sort of assume the death of empires because of both resurgence of nationalism mm -hmm. as well as democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems that, that, that Russia may have hit the limit a bit in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And, and how do you see the kind of return of imperialism interacting with these other impulses, both nationalism and, and yeah. democracy? Well, I, I would say a couple of things. So on the question of nationalism, I think we need to distinguish different kinds of nationalism. Mm -hmm. Because when scholars typically discuss nationalism, they focus on the distinction between what you might call civic nationalism and ethnic nationalism. So ethnic nationalism, you know, we all speak the same language, we're all from the same ethnic stock, therefore we're all a nation. Uh, civic nationalism, like what the United States practices, is we're all citizens of this country, we share a common uh, political creed, and therefore um, we have a common identity. And that is what you see in um, many of the smaller uh, post-imperial in the former imperial peripheries, uh, in some of the smaller states that broke off around the peripheries of the old empires, including, let's say, Ukraine, where there is this tension between a more ethnic and a more civic approach to, to constructing national identity. Um, in the former empires, though, I would argue there's kind of a, a third strand of nationalism that doesn't often get invoked in, in some of these scholarly debates, although there are some scholars who have, have started uh, looking at this, which you might call kind of imperial nationalism. Um, and this is what you see somebody like Vladimir Putin or uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, talking about, which is that we are part of this great civilization. Uh, we are multi-ethnic. Uh, we are not confined to the particular borders of the existing states. Um, but our legitimacy is bound up with our status, with our ability to uh, expand, to inspire, to organize territories beyond our borders. And so I think what you're seeing in Ukraine is a competition between these different forms of nationalism. On the Ukrainian side, there's this contestation between ethnic and civic uh, approaches. And I think especially since the war with Russia started, there's been a shift towards the more civic uh, conception of nationalism. Zelensky has said, you know, it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what religion you are. Uh, what matters is that you're a citizen of Ukraine and you should be a patriot of Ukraine. And then in Russia, you have this kind of imperial nationalist resurgence where it's not only ethnic Russians, but it is uh, people from the North Caucasus. It is people's small uh, ethnic communities from Siberia who are being drafted into the army, but who are being told that you are part of this great Russian imperial project and that you should be proud of Russia because it is this great imperial power. And you should contribute to the building of Russian power at the expense of its neighbors, including Ukraine. Uh, so that's kind of where I see this contestation playing out. And I think part of what we're seeing on the ground is a lot of the Russian leadership, including Putin, based on many of his speeches and, and pieces that he's written, believing that Ukraine is part of this greater Russian imperial nation as well. And there's a long history of this idea among the Russian Soviet and Russian imperial elites going back, as I talk about in the book, to at least the 17th century. Um, and Putin, in his speech uh, announcing the annexation of Crimea in 2014, then in an article that he wrote, or that at least was written under his name about Russian and Ukrainian identity that was released in 2021, makes the case that there's this common history and therefore this shared identity and ultimately shared political future that Russians and Ukrainians share. But what Russia has found since its invasion of Ukraine, and it found this in 2014 too in its invasion in Donbass, is most Ukrainians don't share this belief. They have a very different conception of who they are. They don't think of themselves as being part of this all-Russian nation. They think of themselves as being a nation in their own right that has its own history, its own identity, its own traditions, um, and that is Ukrainian. And that, I think, is part of why this war is so 
brutal, is so vicious, has these almost genocidal uh, underpinnings to it because the Russian belief is that the whole notion of Ukraine and Ukrainianness isn't real uh, or is uh, created artificially and, and should be wiped out. And you know, one of the other themes that sort of comes through is that each of that geography plays a, a real role in the kind of imperial revisionism uh, that uh, each of these four countries that you highlight um, uh, are, 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 are pursuing and that you sort of compare it, at least in the introduction to, you know, UK and France and others, you know, po we sort of think of the post-imperial European legacies of, of, you know, decolonization having mm -hmm. happened. Uh, yes, it's, 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 you know, gnawing at, at, at British heartstrings um, <laughs> oftentimes, as well as the French, but there is, um, but there isn't this sort of geographic uh, mm -hmm. borderlands uh, tension that exists for each of these countries. And maybe you could uh, mm -hmm. uh, talk about that a bit. Yeah, because I, mean, I was talking about imperial legacies. And I think, to some degree, these legacies exist in all former empires. Um, and as you said, uh, in the UK, we, we've seen this really come to the fore since the debate over Brexit was launched. Um, I forget who it was who said, you know, Britain lost an empire and has yet to find a role. Um, and I think it is still struggling with finding a role and is kind of pivoting back to the nostalgia for empire. But the difference between a country like Britain and a country like Russia is in some ways a geographic one. So Britain's former imperial possessions, and I say Britain's, not England's, and I want to come back to this in a second, because I think Britain's imperial possessions, they were overseas, right? It was India, it was Canada, it was... Ghana. It was a lot of places that don't share a common border with the British Isles. And not only that, but because they don't share a common border, the populations are very different. One of the things I note in the book is you could never imagine an Indian dynasty sitting on the British throne, right? Whereas in these Eurasian empires where there is this territorial proximity, you had dynasties from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds who took power at different points. Um, the last Iranian dynasty was Turkic. Uh, the last Chinese dynasty was Manchu. Uh, they spoke a, a language spoken by a, a relatively small number of, of Siberian tribes. Um, and this wasn't seen in the classical age of empire as, as necessarily being a problem. It becomes a problem in the 19th century when this modern idea of ethnic nationalism develops. And that's one of the reasons these empires ultimately collapsed. But it wasn't a problem before that. Now, I want to come back to the distinction between Britain and England, because I think one of the interesting things here is you can make an argument that the English empire on the British Isles looks a lot like what you have with Russia or China in Eurasia. And, you know, if you think about the, the tensions over Scottish independence, let's say, uh, or, you know, the long running civil war uh, in Ireland. Right, it, it shares a lot of these characteristics because there is that geographic proximity. There is this confusion about identity, um, but we don't necessarily think about it in the same terms. No, I think that's um, a, a fascinating point. I mean, the other question that sort of gnawed at me um, throughout the book is, you know, is this simply the, the effort to sort of uh, revive um, uh, an, an imperial mission, so to speak, uh, an effort just simply at uh, at regime legitimation. That mm -hmm. what we see, especially in Russia and Turkey, are two long-standing leaders, Putin uh, from 2000, rolling back democracy, Erdogan, 2003, something similar, Xi Jinping now, um, 
uh, not rolling back democracy, so, <laughs> so to speak, but but reforming and changing uh, how the system works to consolidate his uh, internal power, and then uh, an Iranian regime that, while having uh, some aspects of democracy, uh, has has relatively been in place since uh, since the, the late nineteen since the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. So, is this the the kind of move toward uh, reviving imperialism and something that you that these leaders are doing to legitimate themselves when they don't have the kind of traditional democratic mm-hmm. popular legitimation that they that they might otherwise have. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's part of the equation. And I mean that raises an interesting question of why this is happening now mm-hmm. um, in all four of these states. Um, and you know you can say, well, it, it just so happens that we have a, a Vladimir Putin and a Recep Tayyip Erdogan and a, a Xi Jinping all in power at the same time. But I think there's there's more to it than that. So one, I would say there are these structural legacies that all four of these countries have inherited. So they have these uncertain borders. They have populations that are related to one another on either side of those borders. And those always presented an opportunity for this kind of imperial or quasi-imperial geopolitics. Um, At the same time, in the immediate post-Cold War era, of course, this is the the unipolar moment, this is the third wave of democratization, this is the end of history, where there's this assumption that there's a single viable political model, and it's basically Western-style liberal democracy. For varying reasons, that never took hold in any of these four states. Um, As you said, there are varying degrees of liberalism and democracy in in all four of them. Um, But none of them is what you would call a consolidated liberal democracy. And as a result, once that model was no longer seen as what you should strive for, um, then this challenge of legitimation becomes more difficult. Um, And, you know, in China, there's some emphasis on economic performance and economic growth. Stabilization after the Soviet collapse was a big thing for Putin early in his term. But again, all of that kind of goes away at some point. Um, After 2008, global uh, economic system is not performing particularly well. These leaders can't fall back on democratic legitimation, so they have to find something else. And that something else is, aha, you know, we have this history of empire. We can focus accumulating social and political tensions outward. Uh, we can get people to rally around the flag on behalf of these, you know, larger uh, imperial ambitions. We see this really clearly uh, in Russia, where the annexation of Crimea in 2014 was accompanied by all kinds of classical imperial imagery, right? The, the double-headed eagle and comparisons between Putin and Catherine the Great, who had you know, been the first Russian czar to, or Tsarina to uh, take Crimea under Russian control. Um, and it was associated with this huge upsurge in patriotism, an upsurge in public support for Putin in opinion polls. Uh, so this was a very powerful weapon. Um, and it was one that Putin has gone to uh, again and again. And I think in similar ways, we see this in the other three countries. Iran is in some ways a really interesting example of this because the Islamic Republic, when it comes to power, is completely disdainful of Iran's imperial history. At one point, some of the, the clerics uh, who are in the, the senior milieus around, the, around Ayatollah Khomeini in, in the early 1980s are talking about you know, bulldozing Persepolis, uh, which was Cyrus the Great's capital, and where the, the previous regime had done this sort of 
grandiose imperial uh, ceremony in the 1970s. But then Iran finds itself in this war with Iraq uh, in the 1980s, and it's a very bloody, difficult war that's not going very well. And there's concern that are people in Iran going to support this conflict when the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic is not well established. And so there's this conscious effort to kind of make peace with this imperial past and present what uh, Iran is doing in defending itself against Iraq and then in projecting power into places like Lebanon uh, as consistent with this long history of positioning Iran as a great imperial power. And that's something that ordinary Iranians <coughs> can take pride in. Um, so you see elements of this developing over time, but I think you're right that using it as a basis for political legitimacy is a big part of it, but that's only possible because you have these kind of structural elements that have always been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that's effective for uh, these leaders and, and the population within these countries? I mean, it mm -hmm. seems uh, it's on the one hand, it, Crimea, the Crimea example, mm -hmm. uh, I think demonstrated the, the power essentially of the of Russian nationalism, Russian imperialism. Mm -hmm. uh, but does this also have a negative impact potentially on, uh, you know, we, you talk about how these are multi-ethnic states. Mm -hmm. uh, they were formerly multi-ethnic empires. Is the, is the kind of a, appeal to an imperial tradition, which in some ways is in tied, tied somewhat to an ethnic national one, mm -hmm. does it lead to any sort of pushback or is this sort of, um, is this generally effective for these yeah. leaders in kind of maintaining power? So I would put it a little bit differently mm -hmm. because I think in part what these leaders are doing in trying to mobilize imperial nationalism is overcome ethnic divides. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about a leader like Putin or Erdogan is they don't talk about their countries as being nation states, yeah. right? They talk about them as being multi-ethnic. Um, and they, at least on a rhetorical level, talk about the contributions that people from outside the largest ethnic community have made. Um, so, you know, in, in Turkey, there's obviously a lot of tension around the Kurdish issue. But a substantial number of Kurds in Turkey actually vote for Erdogan's Justice and Development Party um, because many of them are Islamists or conservative, ideologically aligned with that party. But at the same time, because in contrast to some of the traditional Kemalist nationalists, Erdogan talks about a Turkish identity that's open and that is inclusive of all of these different strands, including that of, of Kurds and of the descendants of people who, who came to the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century. They may have to present a, a Turkish face. They may have to speak Turkish in public. But the fact that they are Albanians or Bosnians or Arabs or Kurds isn't necessarily problematic. And so in that way, this, this kind of imperial nationalism is, is more capacious and it's designed to, to overcome some of these ethnic divisions. Um, now, I do think it's problematic because over time, it needs to be constantly regenerated. And I think this is part of the problem Russia finds itself in. So the annexation of Crimea was associated with this huge upsurge in, in patriotic sentiment. But that eventually fades. Um, it's, it's not lasting. And so what do you do when it starts fading? Is it like a drug where you need to, to take another hit of it? Um, I mean, maybe. You know, why is, is Russia invading Ukraine now? I think there are probably multiple reasons you could point to, but I think this is probably one of them. 
right? That you, you could see a, a resurgence of protest activity in Russia before mid-2021 when the preparations for the invasion were given. You saw Putin's approval ratings declining. Economic performance was stagnating. And so this kind of search for another uh, source of legitimacy then uh, kind of pulls the leadership back to this same well. And so they end up taking a very big risk in order to, to try and, um, and regain the same kind of effect they got in 2014. So when it, when it comes to maybe it'll stick with Russia for, for a minute. I mean, there's uh, lots of talk of, of Ruskimir, the Russian world, mm -hmm. uh, Russia sort of claiming in some ways sovereignty over Russian speakers that are outside of Russian territory, which I think, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps help lead to prompt them uh, to, to make the decision or Putin to, to or at least helps justify his, his dis decision to invade Ukraine, uh, uh, seize other parts of territory in Georgia. Um, but then this also seems to put uh, the countries around Russia effectively on notice mm -hmm. for um, uh, that Russia, uh, you know, takes uh, or, or it basically is willing to interfere in their, in their countries and has and views that as mm -hmm. legitimate. While on the same time, contradictorily, Russia then claims uh, sovereignty and how dare mm -hmm. uh, the West potentially do anything vis-a-vis uh, -vis itself. Uh, I mean, what do you think of, of that framework? And is this simply just a, a, a term to legitimize mm -hmm. effectively Russian meddling in its neighbor, with its neighbors? Yeah. Well, I, I think this is one of the key distinctions, or one of the things that makes these four countries, uh, th th that unites them in a way, which is that they view themselves as special, right? So, yes, sovereignty for me, but not for thee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are real states with long-standing historical traditions and legitimacy, and you, these countries around our borders that became independent only when the empires collapsed, you're only legitimate, sovereign, have a right to territorial integrity to the extent that we believe that you do. Um, there's a, a pretty well-sourced story that when Putin met with uh, George W. Bush in, I think, 2007, and they were talking about Ukraine, and Putin said to, to Bush, but George, you have to understand, Ukraine is not even a country, right? And I think that kind of encapsulates the way that certainly Putin and I think a lot of the Russian leadership thinks about not just Ukraine, but a lot of the, the post-Soviet countries. And it's, it, it's similar, it's, it's akin to the way that the leadership in the other three would talk about their respective peripheries. And so maybe let's talk about the, the interplay between these countries. So Russia and Turkey, uh, on the one hand, Putin and Erdogan uh, uh, seem to you know, have a competitive relationship. They're on opposite sides uh, in many of the geopolitical conflicts. Uh, whether it's Libya and uh, in, in, in Syria, uh, yet they also seem to have uh, an ability to, uh, to sit down with each other, to connect. They, they kind of have a connection, I would say. Um, what do you, you know, given Turkish support for Ukraine, uh, so, you know, at least through uh, pr providing certain military equipment through drones, uh, involvement in the, the, the grain deal to enable Ukrainian grain to, to get out of, of the Black Sea. How do you assess this relationship, given they're both seem to be competing with each other, but also um, uh, seem to have a, a really working, workable relationship? Yeah, and birds of a feather in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, I, I point out a, a 
one point in the introduction to the book that um, there's a book about Putin called The New Tsar, and there's a book about Erdogan called The New Sultan. Um, and I think those that's you know pretty a pretty accurate description. But I, I think they borrow from one another in terms of their political style. I think their ambitions are uh, understandable to one another. And I think that means that they are able to work together. I mean, they understand that this is a competitive relationship, that this is one where they're not always going to agree and where the, the balance of power between them is shifting. Um, but that, again, both are okay with this idea of a world safe for empire. So Turkey has a very ambiguous position on the war in Ukraine. Uh, yes, they're providing military support for Ukraine and they have very publicly stated their support for Ukraine's uh, full territorial integrity, including that of, of Crimea. But uh, they don't want to see uh, Russia comprehensively defeated. They don't want to see a larger NATO presence in and around the Black Sea. Um, and they think ultimately that they're going to, Russia is going to be part of their neighborhood and that they're, they're going to have to deal with it and that the conditions for uh, making that interaction as, as comfortable for them as possible need to be laid now. Uh, so it, it's a very uh, complicated relationship. And again, it also encompasses these other regions that you talked about, uh, Libya, Syria, the South Caucasus, uh, even Central Asia. Um, and the interplay between these different regions and how they sort of balance one another's interests in them is a really fascinating story. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the sultan and the czar, I, I guess one, maybe I'll throw this out there as a, as a comment and then curious if you agree that, you know, the Ottoman uh, Empire, the Russian Empire were constantly, they were adversaries, constantly mm -hmm. fighting each other. But it does seem that because there is a sort of joint strongman relationship, revisionist effort mm -hmm. on the part of both Erdogan and Putin, that they're also in some ways allies in trying to revise uh, the post-45 international order. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a way, there's sort of, there, there is some sort of broader uh, alliance, or mm -hmm. not alliance, but um, uh, harmony between them that may not have existed in the, in the imperial age when, mm -hmm. when uh, imperialism was sort of accepted as the norm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and partially that's because of, of territorial and political changes that have taken place since the classical imperial age. Many of the territories that Russia was pursuing imperial ambitions against in the 17th, 18th, 19th, even 20th century were territories that happened to be controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and so there were, people have different numbers for the people count differently, the number of wars that were fought between the two, but it's over a dozen, it may be you know, closer to 20, um, but there were a lot. And Turkey or the Ottoman Empire lost almost all of these wars. And so there is this uh, gradual rolling back of, of Ottoman influence in, in Southeastern Europe and, and in the Caucasus uh, at Russian, uh, to Russian benefit. And that conditioned the, the nature of that relationship for, for a very long time. Um, but with the end of the empires, first, there's no longer a common border between the two, uh, which I think helps. There, there are buffer states between them. Um, and, at the, and secondly, as you said, you know, now there is this kind of common political aspiration, at least as, as it concerns international order as such. Um, so to the extent that the, the big question of, of international order and international security today has to do with whether you have a world that is safe for empire or not, 
Turkey and Russia find themselves largely on the same side. So yes, they continue to, to struggle and to fight with each other, and they've attacked one another's forces in, in Syria especially. Um, their proxies fight one another in Libya and, and in Nagorno-Karabakh and, and beyond. But when you step back from that and, and focus on this sort of big systemic issue, um, they, uh, are, they have much more in common than they probably did before, let's say, 1918. So maybe let's talk about Russia and Iran. Uh, lots of attention on the, um, on the UAVs that Iran is providing to Russia, that Iranian operators may be in Russia and Crimea. Uh, and maybe you could talk about this relationship a mm -hmm. little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I have to imagine the motivation for Iran in providing this support to Russia is a bit more than just economic, you know, than it's not just driven by, by money, mm -hmm. uh, but by a larger sort of geopolitical objective as well. Maybe you could talk about that. Sure. I mean, Russia and Iran uh, have also historically been competitors. Uh, Russia took a lot of the South Caucasus from Iran in the middle of the 19th century. Russian forces and then Soviet forces occupied uh, Iran during both of the world wars. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Russian sentiment in Iran. Um, but nevertheless, uh, now they find themselves with a lot of common strategic objectives. And again, part of it has to do with this notion of a world safer empire, but part of it also has to do with Iran has long been a pariah, um, and Russia is finding itself increasingly becoming a pariah. And so when you don't have a lot of options in terms of where you can go for support, you take it where you can. Now, the fact that Russia can't produce its own UAVs uh, in sufficient quantity or quality for the war in Ukraine and has to turn to uh, Iran is, is really striking. It, it, it says something about the state of the Russian military industrial complex. But uh, I think it also says something about how Russia has evolved its uh, relationship with the West and, and with the, the US-led international order in, in the last few years. Because until fairly recently, I mean, Russia's position on Iran was not the same as that of the United States and its allies, but in a lot of ways it was aligned and, and constructive. You know, Iran's, or I'm sorry, Russia supported uh, several of the UN sanctioned packages over the Iranian nuclear program. They supported the JCPOA. Um, they slow rolled weapon sales to Iran in response to concerns by Israel and, and the United States and its allies. So Russia largely it pursued its own interests, but it didn't actively seek to thwart uh, the interests of the United States and its allies with regard to Iran uh, until fairly recently. But now, with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia has uh, found itself very isolated from the West. Um, has Russian officials have said they basically see themselves in a war with the West. Uh, and therefore, their sort of strategic rapprochement with Iran is also kind of a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. the flaring of tensions, the, the renewed war. Um, and that brings in All Russia, <laughs> yeah, Russia, Iran, Turkey. Um, and I guess one of the, the larger dangers of, of a descent into mm -hmm. a renewed uh, world that's safe for imperialism is, as we know, you know, in the you know, World War I, uh, empires clash. Em em empires clash. Empires uh, lead to war, lead to conflict, uh, and empires are big. And so yep. when those wars happen, they tend to be uh, fairly large and devastating. So where do you, how do, when you were uh, um, assessing that conflict, mm -hmm. how did that kind of play into the narrative that, that you were mm -hmm. creating in this book? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. You know, for now, because there is this kind of unification around the idea of a world safer empire, uh, Russia and Iran, Russia and Turkey, Turkey and Iran, Russia and China have largely been able to manage their tensions, right? Because they all have a, a bigger problem, which is the West. Um, but at some point, that may no longer be the case. And if it's no longer the case, it is going to be precisely these shatter zones or interstitial areas uh, that are going to be on the front lines of those conflicts. And the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh uh, may have been a, a prelude for what that looks like. Um, this is an area where Russian influence has long predominated since the end of the Cold War. Russia has troops stationed in Iran, or in, Iran, in Armenia. Um, Armenia is part of um, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a Russian-led security bloc. Um, but at the same time, Russia has sought to gradually kind of pull Azerbaijan into its sphere of influence as well, through weapon sales, through diplomatic support, uh, and the like. And so Russia has been the main power broker. When fighting broke out a couple of years ago in 2020, it was Russia that basically sat the two leaders down and hashed out the deal that led to um, the, the ceasefire there. 2020, though, also was the moment when the expansion of Turkish influence uh, in this region, in this conflict, really became visible. So Turkey uh, has been cultivating Azerbaijan for a long time, and Azerbaijan has been cultivating Turkey. Uh, and this is a relationship that's based on energy, it's based on economic ties, it's also based on culture. Um, so interestingly, Azerbaijan was never really part of the Ottoman Empire, but there is a very close cultural connection between Azerbaijanis and Turks. Their languages are mutually intelligible. Um, there's a, a kind of common uh, identity to the point that you sometimes hear Turks talking, Turks more than Azerbaijanis, talking about uh, one nation in two states. Um, and so th this relationship has really developed, and part of that included uh, on the military side. So Turkish drones, uh, among other capabilities, Facilities, uh, sold in significant quantities to Azerbaijan, but also training for the Azerbaijani military, um, other kinds of, of weapon systems. And so when Azerbaijan launched its offensive against Armenia in the fall of 2020, it was doing so uh, with a lot of Turkish political and military support. And that was one of the reasons that that war was so decisive uh, a victory in Azerbaijan's favor. Now, Russia, I think, was caught a little bit off guard uh, by what happened in 2020, but kind of scrambled to reposition itself. And it was, again, Russian involvement that helped hammer out uh, the peace deal. Turkey was at the table, and Turkey got some concessions uh, as far as, as the ceasefire uh, was concerned. But over time, Turkish influence in Azerbaijan has expanded. Now Turkey's talking about uh, pursuing norm normalization with Armenia uh, as well, which would help erode uh, Russian influence in Armenia, uh, could potentially consolidate different economic relationships and transit routes. So I think Turkey is becoming a bigger player uh, in the Caucasus. And to the extent that it has a competitive relationship with Russia, <coughs> I think this is one of the regions where that competition is going to play out. Now, so far, uh, Moscow and, and Ankara, or really Putin and Erdogan, have been able to manage their disputes in this conflict diplomatically. Um, they haven't come to blows the way that they have in Syria, let's say. But there's no guarantee that that'll be the case uh, in the future. Um, and this is a very volatile region uh, because it is an interstate conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. There's territory at stake, there's identity at stake. Um, and also Iran is involved in this conflict too. Uh, 
Can I, can I just ask, yeah. do you think that now that the Russian military is sort of very much occupied by events in Ukraine, mm-hmm. that that's leaving a bit of a vacuum mm-hmm. in, in both in, mm-hmm. the, in the Caucasus, Central Asia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, we, we've seen renewed um, attacks in the South Caucasus, I think in part predicated on the idea that Russia's busy elsewhere. Um, there's also been fighting between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia, which I don't think is being driven by Russia or China or any of the imperial powers. But I think the fact that it's breaking out at this particular moment is in part a reflection of, of the belief in the local capitals that the, the longtime hegemon uh, may not have the same hegemonic capabilities that it had a couple of years ago. Um, we, we haven't really talked that much about China mm-hmm. yet, and it seems like this may be a good pivot as the sort of a new elephant in the region is, is a, coming a, back. A new panda. In the new, a new panda, yes. yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Um, maybe you could talk about the, the role of China. I mean, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of focus in Washington on, mm-hmm. on the Belt and Road mm-hmm. Initiative, um, but particularly since the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, what, what role do you see China playing um, how does kind of Eurasia play in its yeah. overall sort of worldview? Yeah, so th- that's a good question because I think when you think about China as a revisionist power, as an imperial power, most of the focus is on its maritime periphery, right? It's yeah. Taiwan, uh, it's Hong Kong, uh, it's the South China Sea. Um, it's not so much in, in the center of Eurasia. But that said, I think there are uh, echoes of Chinese sort of imperial history uh, at play in the region that are likely to become more prominent precisely for the reasons that you outlined. Uh, So take Xinjiang, for instance. Um, We know there is a uh, very comprehensive crackdown on uh, the population in Xinjiang. There are concentration camps, there are education camps. Um, There's this whole sort of effort to change the identity and the culture uh, of the people living in in Xinjiang. And this is a process that we've seen in other borderlands uh, in all of these post-imperial states at different times. Uh, I just think China is is going through this process now, uh, whereas, you know, we saw this in the Soviet Union under Stalin. Uh, We saw it in, in Turkey at various points with the Kurds. Um, but it's just happening now with the, with the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang. And part of that concern has to do with wanting to make sure Xinjiang is oriented more towards Beijing than it is towards, say, Central Asia, which you know, is outside uh, or is at least a more complicated uh, region for, for China. Um, and when it comes to the Belt and Road, I mean, the Belt and Road is an extension of Chinese development plans for Xinjiang and for Western China more broadly um, that have existed you know, for a couple of decades now. Um, and the idea was that you would bring economic development to places like Xinjiang, um, and that would help deal with the problem of separatism, uh, opposition to CCP rule, pro-independence sentiment, extremism, uh, and the like. Um, that strategy remains, but I think when there have been instances of unrest uh, in Xinjiang and in Tibet, the Chinese leadership 
grew very worried. Um, and in addition to this focus on development, then kind of pivoted to this much more securitized uh, approach. But the idea, again, is to integrate and pacify these regions so that they will be uh, effective nodes on these transit routes that China is interested in constructing across the, the interior of Eurasia. But so how are, how are the other countries reacting to this? So what about mm -hmm. Turkey, Russia? Yeah. The, the reaction of the others to the to developments in Xinjiang has been somewhat instructive. And I think Turkey is probably the, the most interesting example here. The population in Xinjiang is Muslim, uh, primarily Muslim, uh, primarily Turkic speaking. Uh, and there's a fairly large Uyghur diaspora in Turkey, uh, many of whom moved to Turkey after uh, the PRC took over Xinjiang at the end of the, the Chinese Civil War. Uh, and there's a lot of public support for the Uyghurs among the Turkish uh, public for these reasons. And in the early 2010s, uh, Erdogan was pretty critical of Chinese approaches in Xinjiang. Uh, he used the word genocide at one point. Um, but in recent years, that has all kind of quieted down. Uh, there is still uh, civil society uh, discussion, discussion in the media about uh, Chinese abuses in Xinjiang. But at the official level, um, criticism has mostly gone away. And I think this is largely a function of uh, Turkish interest in capturing Chinese investment, uh, much of which has been promised, participation in the Belt and Road. Um, but it, it's even gone beyond kind of tamping down the criticism because there have been accusations of Chinese security forces being active inside Turkey, going after uh, Uyghur dissidents uh, and the Turkish um, security services cooperating with them. Uh, so it, it's a very kind of complex dynamic. And you see something similar in a number of the Central Asian countries where public sentiment on the one hand is very supportive of, of the Uyghurs and, and their uh, rights against the Chinese state, but at the same time the leadership of, of these countries has been very, very quiet and pretty supportive of, of the Chinese government's actions because of their uh, economic concerns. Maybe let's look forward a little bit on where and how these countries will interact going forward. So, you know, Russia right now has is in a very tough spot. I mean, it's obviously in a in a tough um, situation in Ukraine. Uh, it's facing massive Western and Western sanctions, uh, export controls, which could stifle its economy for years to come. It will have to rebuild its military. China is now facing a very uncertain, uh, at least near term, in terms of its uh, uh, lockdown due to COVID and. Uh, effort to sort of get out of a zero COVID policy. We start, we're seeing protests in Iran and Turkey's going to have elections next year. So could this be simply sort of the high point of this kind of post-imperial mm -hmm. revisionism and we sort of maybe have underestimated the West and democracy and that, mm -hmm. that you know, as the protests in Iran sort of demonstrate that there is uh, still a, a strong kind of counter-democratic mm -hmm. response. Um, how, how do you see these interacting or what, 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 what do you think will, how, how this will materialize yeah. in the years ahead? Yeah, so I think you're right about the resilience of, of democracy. Fareed Zakaria had a good uh, op-ed about this in the, in the Washington Post this morning. Um, I think there was this period in the wake of the 20, 2008 financial crisis where democracy seemed to be under pressure and, and under threat. 
you know, never mind in places like Russia, but even in, in core parts of the West. And hopefully we've passed the peak of that democratic pessimism and, and we're moving towards an era where uh, the resilience of democracy becomes uh, more pronounced and its attractiveness as a model, uh, including for people in non-democratic states, becomes, becomes greater. Um, and that certainly could have implications for all of these post-imperial states. That said, I don't know that uh, one, I think the course towards real democratization in all four of these states, or let's say towards liberal democracy, because Turkey is a democracy, uh, but towards you know real Western-style liberal democracy in, in all four of these states, is going to be difficult in part because of these imperial legacies. Um, one of the things I mentioned in the book is all four of these countries have borderlands that are inhabited by significant populations from ethnic groups or religious groups that have a different identity from the one that's in control of the state. So like the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang. And historically, in all four, there's been a correlation between volatility in these borderlands and authoritarian rule. So Ataturk establishes single party rule in Turkey in response to a big Kurdish rebellion in the 1920s. Um, Putin cracks down, creates the so-called power vertical in response to violence in the North Caucasus. Xi Jinping becomes the paramount leader uh, after this wave of unrest in Tibet uh, and Xinjiang. Um, so I think as long as you have these states that are built on these kind of heterogeneous uh, populations, it's going to be hard for them to achieve true democracy. I mean, you can even think about the United States in, the, in this regard, to be honest, because, I mean, real American democracy is a relatively recent phenomenon, right? I mean, it was long a democracy for certain elements of the population, but not for others. And it was only when the U.S. had kind of consolidated itself as a, a single entity with a relatively homogenous population, in part by displacing the populations that had been there before, uh, that it was able to, you know, move in this direction of, of real democracy. Um, that's kind of a pessimistic view, but um, I'm a little skeptical that you're going to see real uh, effective and lasting democratization in, in these four countries in the, in the near future. I mean, you know, I, I would like to be proven wrong, and, and maybe I will be. I think the protests in Iran are uh, a really good sign that the, the current regime has outlasted its usefulness has, has outlasted its legitimacy. And even if this particular wave of protests uh, wanes or, or is put down, I think there's a chronic uh, legitimacy problem that the Islamic Republic faces uh, that it's not going to be able to solve. Uh, in Russia, it's unclear what comes after Putin. Uh, there's no mechanism in place. There's no uh, institutions. They've all been kind of hollowed out. Uh, once Putin is gone, one way or another, we could see something very different, although that may not be democracy, that may be you know, some kind of, of dictatorship by the security services or, or something. Um, so I, I think all of these countries are in the, these very fluid political moments that are happening at the same time that there is hopefully this resurgence of democratic sentiment globally. And hopefully those two phenomena will intersect in a way that brings about greater democratization. But I think it's worth being uh, a little bit skeptical that everything is going to turn out for the best, at least in the next couple of years. Right. It's that even, even if there is 
let's just say color revolutions and, and, and the regime falls in Iran and there's a change in Russia that um, opponents of a, a liberal democratic path will always be able to sort of tug on the imperial heartstrings, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, and color, you know, use the term color revolutions. I mean, in the post-Soviet countries that experienced color revolutions, the, the record of the post-revolutionary governments is, is very, very mixed, right? So Georgia had this moment of, of real democratization and now is kind of falling back into some of these old authoritarian habits. So I, I don't think the fact that you have a bad regime being overthrown by by popular revolt necessarily means that you're going to get a good regime in its place. Maybe just to, to close, we could talk a little bit about the role of the United States and the West in, in, in frankly, trying to counter uh, a, a, you know, the, the efforts by these four countries in trying to create a world safe for uh, imperialism. Um, what, what, what policy approaches or strategies should um, should the West and, and the U.S. and other allies play? I mean, this is require calling out these countries more directly, mm -hmm. um, or sort of more of a soft touch approach that is about mainly strengthening our own kind of systems and, mm -hmm. and, and interconnection. Well, it's yes and I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, I do think there is a place for more um, assertive responses to examples of real, you know, imperial behavior that violates other states' territorial integrity and sovereignty. So Ukraine is probably the clearest example of this. I'm, I'm a very strong supporter of helping the Ukrainians uh, win this war, whatever that looks like, on their terms, uh, in a way that makes clear that Russia's imperial resurgence uh, has failed, uh, both to secure Ukraine's own sovereignty and, and territorial integrity, but also to force Russia to really uh, have to cope with the failure of this operation and what that means for its future as, as a state. Um, elsewhere, I mean, this is harder. You know, the U.S. is not going to be heavily involved in Syria uh, after the, the drawdown of a couple of years ago. Um, and I think there's not a whole lot that, that the U.S. can do to kind of limit the post-imperial aspirations of, of Russia, Turkey, and Iran there. But where the opportunity does present itself uh, and where the U.S. has interests at stake, I think it should be pretty forward-leaning in helping smaller states resist the imperial advances of their larger neighbors. Taiwan, of course, is the other uh, big example of this. At the same time, yeah, I think we have to do a better job of making our own example more appealing, including for people who live in places like Russia and Iran and, and China. Um, and some of that means coping effectively with our own imperial legacy. Uh, you know, I talked before about the, the displacement of, of the native population in the United States, which is something that we still are kind of grappling with and, and struggling to come to terms with. Um, it has to do with our relationship with Puerto Rico, uh, which as it's experienced a couple of, of hurricanes and, and found Washington uh, not picking up the phone, um, is maybe at a point of reassessing its relationship with the United States. So I think we have to be honest about our own uh, imperial legacies and our own imperial failings and, and do what we can to, to rectify them. But at the same time, while doing that, calling out the abuses of these other post-imperial powers and, and doing what we can to help the potential victims of these imperial powers resist and, and to stand on their own. I think that's the best way to move towards a world that's not safe for empire. Great. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. Congrats on what is a, a fantastic book that's uh, just incredibly thought-provoking and, and incredibly well-written. Uh, really recommend it to, to, to everyone, to our audience. 
Um, it's been been a real pleasure to have you here. Sorry about the cough. It's not COVID. <laughs> it's winter. Uh, but uh, really um, uh, recommend everyone go out and buy the book. Uh, and, uh, and and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.